listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. A common thought when our person dies is, the best days are over, my life will never be as good again. Our person might be a partner, sibling, parent, best friend, a child, anyone who played a significant role in our life, and also a role in how we pictured our life unfolding in the future. And it's true, life won't be the same. Our small day-to-day routines and bigger life events won't be the same, because they aren't there. But for Krista St. Germain, whose husband was killed by a drunk driver, his absence and the difference in her life haven't eclipsed the potential for her to be happy, to still love her life. It's this commitment to the idea that happiness can still exist for her that is the foundation of the work she does, both as a podcast host and a life coach. At first, Krista didn't plan to work with widows, but life took another turn and helping other widows has become the focus of her practice. Her podcast, The Widowed Mom Podcast, offers validation and tangible support, but not just for widowed moms, for anyone really who's dealing with loss. Krista and I first talked on episode 60 of The Widowed Mom Podcast, where she asked me insightful questions about how to support children who are grieving. And when I say insightful, I mean really hard. If you didn't catch that interview, be sure to tune in. In this episode, Krista's answers are just as insightful as the questions she asked me. We talk about how she shared the news of her husband's death with her two children, how she navigated the what-ifs and the if-onlys around how her husband died, and how she came to understand that there really are no bad emotions, that feelings aren't problems that need to be fixed, even including the really uncomfortable ones like anger, guilt, and shame. Krista is, well, I don't need to describe her to you as you'll soon get to know her in our conversation, but I so enjoyed sitting with her particular take on thoughts emotions, and ways of working with both of them. She's also funny as all get out, which is surprisingly not rare in the grief world, but always appreciated. Krista, thank you so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud today. My pleasure. Absolutely. It's always so fun to have somebody on the show when I've been on their show, because now I get to be on the other end of, well, I'm on the same end of the mic, but on the other end of the asking and the answering of the questions. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. And it's fascinating for me too, because your podcast was so helpful to me early on before I ever entered this work. So it's kind of a full circle moment. So I I always like to start with just hearing a little bit about the person, like the person that brought you to doing this work and to talking so openly about your grief. So how do you describe your husband, Hugo? (laughs) He was ornery and brilliant. He was an electrical engineer And so he was very nerdy, but also kind of a Renaissance man, right? So he just loved all subjects. He loved reading. He loved talking. He was very passionate and fiery. He would get super riled up about something and his whole neck would turn red, you know, um, (laughs) just get fired up about things. And he had this really quirky laugh um, that we always poked fun at him for, you know, but he was kind of known for. And of course, being French Canadian and, and his first language 
being French, even though his English was, I think, amazing. The way he said particular words always sticks out to me. But he was just full of life and lots of fun and loved to be outdoors and very passionate about airplanes and and life. Just lots of life in him. And has how you talk about him or describe him to people, has that changed over the years since he died? I think it's maybe become a little bit less altruistic and a little more realistic. I think in the beginning, it was easier to just remember all the good stuff and downplay. You know, it's like people kind of enter that sainthood place in your mind. And I think I did that a little bit. Whereas now I just see him in in maybe a more human and balanced kind of way. It makes sense then that you started with ornery. That was the first adjective. (laughs) Yeah. Was that a conscious shift on your part of moving into that place of being able to talk more honestly or realistically about all of his characteristics and qualities, those that were like ones that you loved and maybe ones that were a little bit more prickly? I don't think it was a conscious shift as much as it was just kind of maybe the passage of time and seeing things a little bit differently. I don't think I ever really chose to do that though, but we worked together. All of my coworkers, you know, when I went back to work, they also wanted to tell their own stories about him and talk about him. And so I think a lot of it, that was really helpful to me. And because we talked about the, the funny things and the silly things and the, the crazy things that he would say and do, that kind of helped me stay a little more grounded there because it wasn't just in my head. It was other people reminiscing. And sometimes people telling me stories that I hadn't heard because, you know, I'd only worked for that company for 10 years. He'd been there for 20. And so there were people there, you know, that knew him longer than I did. And so some of the things that I learned about him, I didn't know before he died. And (laughs) some pretty, you know, entertaining aspects. (laughs) So, yeah. And before we hit record today, you and I were chatting a little bit about the places we live in the country and what natural disasters we're most prone to as I'm out here in Portland dealing with wildfires and wildfire smoke. And we were having that like, oh, I wonder, you know, what's better or worse, a tornado or mm-hmm. an earthquake? And and that comes up so often in in conversations about how someone has died. And I was just wondering with, you know, with your husband, he was he was killed by a drunk driver. And what role did how he died play in your grief? Uh, Yeah, a pretty significant one in my mind. So, and it was not only a drunk driver, but it was also, so he was trying to change the tire on my car. So I had pulled over and he was trying to change the tire and he had parked behind me. And while he was getting in my trunk, trying to find the tire, then the person who caused the accident, you know, hit the back of his car and trapped him in between his car and mine. So It was both the accident, but then also my role in the accident, right? So I went through all of the woulda, shoulda, couldas for myself and the guilt, and I should have called AAA, and, you know, I didn't follow my instincts, and I should have pulled up further on the highway, and I should have gotten the car serviced before the trip, and all of those um, sorts of lovely guilt-inducing thoughts that I had to work through. Um, 
of course, then just also not seeing it coming in any way, shape or form. I, I had no preparation for it. So I had to go through adjusting to the reality of it wasn't a dream, even though it felt like a terrible nightmare that actually did happen. And so there was that part of where it just all felt so surreal that it couldn't have possibly happened. And then the trauma aspect of being there and the memories of what I saw and what I heard and, you know, kind of continuing to flash back to the scene of the accident in my mind, watching everything that happened in the hospital and them, you know, the doctors trying to save him for what felt like ever. I'm not sure how long it actually was, but felt like forever, you know, watching all of it. So then there was just all of that and his mom, you know, he was an only child and his mom lived in Montreal and her coming in and having to have that, you know, discussion with her, all of those things, I think, added facets to what I needed to work through to be able to move forward. Yeah. And then even the doctors, right? The doctors admitting that things hadn't gone well, that they had made, not really, they didn't really say accidents, but things hadn't gone the way they had wanted them to. And so then you know, do you sue them? The, the, do you forgive them? What is all of that about? Waiting for, you know, nearly a year for the court proceedings and all of that. And do I forgive him? And so lots of facets that, that were unique based on the situation. Yeah. And as you were talking, you described, you know, those feelings of guilt and like, I should have done this or could have done something different or somehow I was at fault in this. And, and you didn't talk about anger or anger at the person who hit the car or, you know, at the doctors, just wondering if that played a role for you as well. Less so than looking back, I think I would have expected. I had some moments of anger. I was kind of more angry that it all happened. But for some reason, my brain fairly quickly went to, it just was never really directed at one person, I guess, because my, my, my thinking about the driver was you don't do meth and ingest alcohol and get behind a car on a Sunday afternoon if everything in your life is going swimmingly, right? You just don't do that. So that's a hurting person. Now, do I, am I happy he did it? No. Do I want him to receive the consequences? Do I? Yes. But I don't think he did it on purpose. And so it was easier for me to not be angry when I saw it from that perspective. And kind of the same way with the doctors. I was just mad that it happened. But, you know, even after he died, we were in the intensive care unit and one of the doctors came in and he was just crying. He was just crying. And he was, I guess you would call him the attending Position So where he had been supervising a resident and the resident performed a procedure with a known complication that didn't go according to plan. And this other doctor tried to salvage it. And clearly he didn't. How much did that contribute to my husband's death? I'm not exactly sure, but he clearly was expressing to me that it, he felt like it was his fault. I don't know. I just had this moment where I thought, okay, that's not, that's not useful. Right? Like, and he was, talking about how he needed to go. He was really sorry and he needed to go care for another patient. He was just literally crying. I felt m way more compassion in that moment than I think I ever imagined that I would feel, which is kind of surprising when I look back on it, but I really did feel compassion for him. And I believed he did was doing his best. It just didn't work. It just wasn't good enough. But I didn't, I didn't ever really think 
that anybody tried to hurt my husband on purpose. And so that, I guess, is probably why I wasn't so angry. And listening to you, it seems like just sort of working through that now and then and, and maybe being a little, like you mentioned, surprised at the way your mind kind of moved into this place of like compassion for the humanity of these folks who things happen and being really angry that the thing happened, but not yes. necessarily at their personal onus in it. And and what about that other part of like the holding yourself accountable? Like what helped you in moving through or maybe still moving through some of those? And I mean, that that's something that's so common for folks when someone dies is what, what could I have done differently? And then holding themselves to blame or to account for something that they didn't have any input or control over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I just realized it was going to take me nowhere fast, right? That that was a game I could play forever with myself is how I could have done it differently. And to what? For what? Right? That was like a complete waste of my life and my energy. And, and almost I could see it as like a disservice to my husband. And so it was just like, oh, wait, Krista, that's we're not going to spend our time there. We're not going to spend our time there because we could find the truth in that all day long but it's not helpful. I'm, I'm smiling a little to myself thinking like, oh, I'm so grateful you have your podcast, the Widowed Mom podcast and your coaching practice in that I'm like, oh, if only we could like market <laughs> that capacity to talk to ourselves in that way and actually have it work, right? Because I think for so many of us, we think like, oh, it's not helpful for me to think that way, but then we just keep thinking that way. And so I'm grateful for the work that you're doing of, of supporting other people and in building some cognitive muscle capacity to shift that thinking. Yeah. If we could talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves, especially <laughs> in grief, right. And support ourselves with our thinking. It really does change the experience. How old were your children at the time that their dad died? Um, 12 and nine. And he was their stepdad. Yeah, not their biological dad, but 12 and 9. And then he had been married before and had a son who was, Lance, who was 17 almost, or 16 almost about to turn 17. So what was it like for you to, to tell your children what had happened? Horrible. It happened relatively quickly. So we had been coming back from a trip, and my daughter was with us on the trip, but she rode the bus back, and we drove our separate cars. And so... I called her as I was waiting on the ambulance to get there to let her know, you know, I was actually texting her to tell her we were going to be late because of the flat tire when the accident happened. And then I called her to tell her. And of course, you think you're more calm than you probably sound. Um, so that was her first interaction was, you know, me telling her that Hugo had been in an accident and of course, instant tears. And, um, but then really they, I, I specifically asked that they not come to the hospital. And so me telling them was after it had already was over, right? So the accident happened late that evening. And then by midday, the next day he was gone. And so um, I made them come home and my parents brought them to me. And then I sat them down and I told them, and I think Marissa knew, you know, on the way home, she just wanted me to tell her over the phone. And I said, no, I just, I want to be together and in person. And it was really pretty awful, to be honest. And then Lance was with us the whole time. So um, I had been able to get a hold of him and his mother and they came up to the hospital immediately. But, you know, then the downside of that is that he stood there with me and my father and, and watched all of the CPR and, and 
now has the memory of seeing his dad in that way. Um, so I didn't have to tell him he was there. And then over time, what did your children need in their grief? Not what I expected. I really thought my son would be the one to struggle more. He was younger and he spent a lot of time with Hugo and they did things together versus my daughter who was older and was just a little bit more independent and she just didn't spend as much time with him doing things. And so I expected that my son would be the one that would feel the impact of it more, but it was really the opposite. I think for my son, it was the realization that people you love die. And then he kind of then began worrying about me. So it was less about losing Hugo and more, more about the potential of losing me. I remember one time I was tucking him into bed and he said, I want to die like five seconds before you do because I don't, I don't want to know what it's like to not have you. Yeah, he was just wanted a lot of extra attention from me, um, specifically in those early days. And it was really more about, oh, people die versus my daughter who she seemed to feel the impact of what she lost in the future more. She realized he never got to teach her French and he never got to teach her how to water ski. And she saw all of the things that could have been. And that was where she needed support more. She wanted to talk about him a lot and she still likes talking about him. Whereas Carson less so. They both kind of surprised me. She's the one that she'll, she'll just joke about him randomly still. And she's, I don't know, maybe, and this is my opinion, like an older soul in a way. You know, I remember, I always talk about how, you know, we can create connection with our feelings or with our thoughts. And we were in Colorado, which is where he loved to go. My dad has a cabin there. And right before um, Hugo died, we had hiked a 14er there. And, you know, it's just kind of his favorite place to be. And a couple of years later, one of the times we go there regularly, we were there in the cabin and I was telling Marissa, like, I wish Hugo was with us. Like we were looking at the view and she just looked at me and she was like, he's with us. Like, it was just like this knowing of her little old soul. At maybe she was 14 then. Like she just looked at me like, <laughs> why would you ever think he's not with us? You know, and I don't think those kinds of things ever cross Carson's mind. Were you equally surprised by how you responded and what you needed? Mm. I think I, if you had asked me beforehand, how would I have handled something like that? I think I would have thought that I would be unable to function for longer maybe. And so I look back on it and I think, wow, I was in six weeks, I was back at work. Not that there's a good or bad or right or a wrong timeline or anything. I got to functioning faster than I thought that I would. And I attribute that to immediately going back to therapy because I had a therapist already and a whole lot of support and letting myself have a lot of time to journal, to think, to cry, to do whatever I needed to do to kind of process it all. It's pretty amazing when we think back on like what we forecasted in our minds of like how we might respond to a particular tragedy or a death or some other type of loss. And then what the reality ends up looking like and, and where we almost shock ourselves with our capacity and where we are also taken off guard by our additional need, maybe in a, in a space that we didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
And a big part of your process, you know, we mentioned your podcast, the widowed mom podcast and your life coaching business. And I mean, that's direction. Not everyone who's had someone die takes, but it's one that you've taken. And what's it been like for you to move into a role of supporting others who are going through something similar that you experienced? Well, when I became a life coach, I really wasn't intending to coach widows. That wasn't really my plan. I hadn't done enough of my own work at that point, And I imagined that it would be sad. I wasn't really very comfortable with people having emotions. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it would be depressing. And I was kind of in that place where I was just kind of getting some traction in my own life. And I imagined it would pull me down. So I didn't go into it thinking, well, I'm going to change the world for all the widows. Once I got into it, And because I kind of threw myself into it and kept coaching myself and getting coached on the aspects of my own healing that needed to happen, then I could see the power of helping other widows. When I got into life coaching, it was just like, I can help other people with life, but I didn't think I could help them with grief. So the self-growth for me there was huge. You, you go to help someone with something and then it uncovers some little aspect of it you haven't yet worked through. And then you have the opportunity to work through it. And then you're able to help the next person even more. And so it's this kind of constant evolution where I kind of bump up against my own limits and then I get to see them. They come to the light and then I get to work on them. And then I grow a little more and the cycle continues. And so it's a huge gift in terms of my own personal involvement. And some days I just kind of shake my head and I think I just cannot believe I get to do this job. It's very humbling. Is there an example of a a recent, I can't remember the word you just used of like when you bump up into something and it's like, oh, another opportunity for me to learn and grow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So many, any sort of, well, self-judgment, you know, I've done a lot of work there because I'm kind of always kind of seen myself as, you know, the perfectionist, a plus gold star seeker. who tends to be pretty critical about herself. Whenever I get to coach someone on something there, and then I see, ooh, this hurts a little bit. There's something that doesn't quite feel right to me. Then I kind of take that as my sign of, I need to do a little bit of more work there. But people just bring me all sorts of things that maybe weren't related necessarily circumstantially to my own life experience, but it's maybe a thought pattern or a feeling pattern or something I'm resisting that feels like a little bit of a bruise. And then I just see that as that. Okay. There it is. There's the, there's the hook. There's what I need to work on. It's all over the place. It seems like those things you mentioned, because I I felt like you were talking for me with perfectionism and gold star seeking. (laughs) I just feel like, well, there's a lifetime of work right there. I know no need to add anything else. There's plenty of fodder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we, we take those same thought patterns, right. And apply them to grief you know, everybody's different. But for me, it's, is there a right way to be doing this, a wrong way to be doing this? There are feelings I'm supposed to be feeling. There's feelings I'm not supposed to be feeling. There's a certain place I'm supposed to be in my healing versus not. There's compare and despair of, you know, my journey versus that of others. It's all that stuff. Yeah. Which leads me to my next question in in our, in the podcast conversation we had for your show and in, in other episodes I've listened to, you talk a lot about this idea that there's no bad emotion, which, you know, on a, basic level. I'm like, yeah, I can 
get into that. But then on like a feeling level, sometimes I'm like, oh, is that really true? Because there's some feelings I really don't enjoy (laughs) as much as other feelings. So Mm -hmm. could you talk a little more about that idea of like, what was it like for you to come to that realization? And how, how is that helpful for folks who are in grief? Yeah. So when we think about emotions as bad, we kind of avoid them. Yeah. But if all emotions are designed to be part of our human experience, and because we're humans with brains that have thoughts that create feelings, right, and we're going to have them all, then thinking of them as bad actually just makes them worse. So that's why I like to think about them as just experiences. The last thing you want to do is resist or avoid a feeling that just makes it intensify, right? Or it pushes it down to the point that at some point it's going to pop back up, right? Or it has us maybe in a particular numbing behavior because we're trying to escape it because we think of it as something bad to be avoided. And so if instead of saying, no, I don't want this, we say, yes, I'll allow it, our experience of it changes. And so I don't mean to say that when we're feeling happy, we're like, yay, I would really love some anger today. (laughs) Right? I don't mean that. I mean, when we're angry to then say, I don't want to be angry. I shouldn't be angry. Anger anger is awful. It, It changes our experience of anger and makes it harder on us. It creates more suffering, right? Instead of, I can handle this anger. All humans sometimes feel angry. I can allow this to pass. That seems so key, what you just said of, I can handle this anger. Because I oftentimes think when those really intense emotions come, well, all emotions can be intense, but intense emotions I oftentimes leave us feeling very uncomfortable. It is from a place of, I can't handle this. I don't know what to do with this. This is going to overtake me. This is going to obliterate me. When I think about things like shame and guilt and regret and just deep, deep, deep sadness or rage, ones that tend to come up in grief. And so... Yeah, just really appreciating the idea of like, not only is it normal and okay for me to have these emotions, I can also withstand them and I can handle them. Yeah. And it's no wonder we think we can't because whoever taught us how, it's not anything I grew up knowing. Nobody said, hey, here's, here's where your feelings come from and here's what to do when you have one. So I think we also should show ourselves some grace and compassion that for most of us, our experience of emotion is try to get away from it, right? Try to make it go away, numb it out, or even worse, you know, maybe we have a pattern of reacting to it such that it feels like that emotion has some sort of control over us. Of course, we don't want to feel those things, but yeah, we can handle it. It's a skill. What are the ways that you model that or teach your children about how they can handle some of the the bigger emotions that come with grief. Mm -hmm. I remember, as you asked me that question, I remember when Carson was getting ready to go to middle school and it was after Hugo died. And I don't even think it was grief related. It just jumped out in my brain, but he was really nervous and anxious about getting lost in the building and what that would be like. And so I did something with him that I teach my clients to do, which is to, to name the emotion. What is it? Right. So for him, it was anxiousness and then to open up to it, to like get really curious about it and interested in it and then figure out from that place of the watcher, 
right? Like watching our physical experience in our body. What is it that's happening? And so I, I just started asking him all of these questions about what he was noticing in his body and what it was like. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was like, it was like an, it was like a purple octagon that was warm and buzzy. I don't remember it, you know, but just very clear, right? Once I could help him get to that place where he wasn't thinking the thoughts that made him anxious anymore. He was describing his physical experience of feeling anxious, which allowed it to then pass through. Oh, I totally love the image of uh, middle school anxiety being a warm, fuzzy purple octagon. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then we talked about like, do you think all the other kids are maybe having some feelings like that? Right? And if that's really all it is, what if we just put it in our backpack and we just brought it to school with us? What would that be like? We don't even have to make it go away necessarily when we know that it isn't really something that can hurt us because it is just a purple octagon. <laughs> right? Well, that, that little last piece of, you know, what, what are the other kids possibly feeling? I think about, you know, Doggy Center, we do peer support groups. And so often the magic of the group is just folks coming together and saying, I feel rage. Oh, I feel rage too. What's your rage look like? My rage looks like this. And then there's just this like, oh, I'm not alone in my rage. And not that it necessarily makes it easier to carry it, but maybe it makes it feel a little less alien or scary in that way mm -hmm. because like someone else gets it too and can reflect my experience back to me in describing what they're going through. Yeah. And maybe it isn't the problem that I thought it was. That's what, that's what I used to think was that emotions were problems that needed to be fixed. And so realizing that for myself helps me then transmit that same philosophy to my kids that emotions are part of the human experience and they're definitely part of the grief experience, but they aren't things that we need to fix. They aren't signs that we're broken. They're just signs that we're human. What are some of the other themes that come up for you and in, in your work now with coaching other widows? Mm -hmm. A lot of, well, definitely the feelings work, right? Nobody, nobody really has that skill. So we, I do a lot of working on that with clients. A lot of arguing with the past, right? And it shouldn't have been that way. They shouldn't have done it that way, but just a lot of it should have gone some other way than it did. And trying to decide what, what do we want to think about the past? Because the way that we're usually thinking about it is creating quite a lot of suffering. With my clients too, there's a lot of um, my best days are behind me. And the best I can hope for is a new normal. And they say that with an air of resignation because it is really difficult to imagine that you could love your life again. And that if you did love your life again, it wouldn't mean anything about your relationship with the person who died. Is that a process you personally had to go through as well? Less so for me. And I think it's because Hugo loved life so much. And I knew that he would want me to love my life. And I knew that he would never, I mean, these are kinds of conversations that we had had that if there was, you know, something were to happen to him, he would want me to remarry. He, he, there was not a jealous bone in his body. And so I, I just didn't have any of that chatter in my brain at all. 
So it, to me, I felt like I was moving forward and honoring him by being happy. So what is that like for you then to be sitting in this, in this role of coaching someone who is really struggling with that idea of like, my best years are behind me. My life's going to be like, okay, like I'm going to figure out a way to live this new life, but I'm not going to really like it. What's it like for you to, to sit with someone when you, when you personally aren't able to relate on that same level? Yeah. Well, I really did think there for a while that I probably would never be as happy again. Right. I really thought like he was my knight in shining armor and I probably wouldn't find anybody as amazing. And therefore I wouldn't be as happy, but it wasn't because I wasn't giving myself permission to seek that out. It was because I was thinking that he was the unicorn. So I can relate on that level. I just never made a desire for another relationship or a desire to move forward mean anything about him or my relationship with him. So, but that's the magic of coaching. My job as a coach is not to have an agenda for a person's life. It's not to convince them of anything, right? My job is to show them what their current thinking is creating for them to increase their awareness because when they see how powerful they are and when they see what they're creating, then they can make their own choices because I don't know what's best for my clients. I don't know what their life journey is supposed to be. I have no idea, but I know that they know. And my job is just to kind of help them get out of their own way. So it's easy for me to sit with someone and let them come to their own conclusion and their own awareness and then create their own intention and like release the need for their life to go in a particular way or for them to see it the way I see it. Yeah. That your role is more of bringing awareness by kind of shining a light on or pulling out the ways in which some of the automatic thoughts that we can often have in grief, like what are the stories and the narratives those are creating and and, in what ways are those opening doors for us or narrowing our mm, options or perspectives in some way? Right. Yeah. Because most of the times we don't know that, right? We don't know that we're telling ourselves a story that's optional. We think we're just reporting the news. And so when someone can show us that it's optional and that we could see it another way if we wanted to, then we can exercise our own agency and make decisions for ourselves. And it's very difficult to do that when it's your brain, which is why having a coach helped me because I couldn't do that for myself. Yeah, when it's your own brain and it's your own brave, uh, your own brain that's dealing with grief. When there's so many other things that are needing your attention. So, so for listeners out there who are listening today and are thinking like, oh, this sounds like something I want to explore more. I want to hear more from Krista. Like, what are the ways that people can be in touch with and connect with you? Yeah, my podcast for sure. It's called the Widowed Mom Podcast, and even though it's called the Widowed Mom Podcast. I get a lot of emails from people who aren't widows or moms <laughs> that tell me that it's just helpful for them. Even people going through divorces, you know, just any, because grief isn't just about death, right? So um, that's one way for sure. I'm having some fun on Instagram, kind of figuring that out a little bit. So at Life Coach Krista. And then I also do pretty regularly Facebook lives and some free public coaching calls. So all of that is coachingwithkrista.com. Well, thank you so much, Krista, for spending some time today talking with me on Grief Out Loud and um, kind of bringing our conversation full circle that we started on the Widowed Mom podcast a couple months ago. 
Yeah, thank you. And thank you for doing this podcast, really. I mean, I know you hear from some of your listeners, but just as one of them, I couldn't find anything, really, when I found your podcast. It was such a relief to me. I just so remember hearing the platitude and cliche-free and thinking, oh, thank God. <laughs> Somebody who's just going to be honest and I, can, and I can actually, you know, feel understood. So, so thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, I sometimes think we could just say that platitude cliche free. End of end of episode. (laughs) End of episode. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you again. I learned something new every time we talk and listeners be sure to check out Krista's podcast, her Instagram, her Facebook lives. There's just so much more to engage with around this topic. And Krista, I hope uh, your week remains natural disaster free as it has so far. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) And listeners out there, thank you again for tuning in each and every time I say thank you for that. If you want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear what the show means to you. You can reach me at griefoutloud at Dougie.org. And if you're interested in learning more about the Dougie Center or supporting our work in any way, you can go to D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash griefoutloud. Thanks again for listening and hope you'll join us again next time. 